And go ahead and turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to get started in Matthew chapter 5 here in just a few minutes. I think I need to say good morning. I'm not sure some of you are awake yet. Good morning? Okay, there's some awakeness here. All right, good. We got somebody awake, a few people awake. This is good. Matthew chapter 5, while you're turning to find it, let me welcome you all to Elevation Church. I know Jim did that just a few minutes ago, but I want to do that as well. I want to welcome you and tell you we're glad that you're here this morning. Whether you're here for the first time or the, um, let's see, we celebrated 104 weekends last weekend. So whether you're here for the first time or the 105th time, we're glad that you're here. Elevation Church is just over two years old, and we're excited about that. Looking forward to a fantastic 2013. God's given us a great vision for where we're headed in 2013. Talked a little bit about that last week. If you missed that, hey, we're going to have some... Um, CDs, and we'll have the messages up on the website. We're running a couple of weeks behind right now, but we're catching up quickly, so be watching for those, and you can catch up on some of that. Otherwise, we'll fill you in along the way piecemeal. Maybe you found Matthew chapter 5 by now. Maybe you haven't. Matthew's the first book in the New Testament, if that helps some of you. That would help me. I'm just telling you. Red Ink, the series that we're kicking off this morning. Red Ink. Now, some of you guys may think you know what Red Ink is all about. Some of you may be drowning in it right now because it is January and Christmas was just a few weeks ago. If some of you guys drown, don't raise your hands, but if you're drowning in red ink, that's not the kind of red ink I'm here to talk about this morning. And you're glad to hear that. I know some of you, very glad to hear we're not talking about financial red ink. You're not, you know, we're not talking about drowning in debt. We're talking about a red ink that will actually bring life and encourage you that can build you up instead of tear you down. The red ink that we're going to be talking about this morning and for many Sunday mornings to come, is the red ink of the words of Jesus. Because in many Bibles, they print Jesus' words in red ink to set them apart from the rest of what's there. Because those words are life. They're vital. And so we want to take some time, invest that time in those words, that red ink, not so that you can all know more about Jesus. There's some value in knowing more about Jesus, but the vision that God has given us for this year, the specific instructions that we have, it's not about knowing more about Jesus. It's about knowing Jesus more. It's about having a deeper, a stronger faith in Him, a deeper, stronger connection to Him. It's about having a very personal, very intimate relationship with Jesus, your Savior, your Lord. And so this series, Red Ink, is going to really focus a lot on helping multiply your faith. Make your faith that much better, that much stronger, that much deeper. So I hope that as we go through this morning and the many Red Ink messages to come, I wish I knew how many, I don't know, we're going to see where God leads us on that, but I hope, I pray my intent and purpose is that your faith is multiplied as we do this. Surely you found Matthew chapter 5 by now. If you have, let me tell you this. At the end of chapter 4, leading into chapter 5, Jesus is up to something. His ministry has just begun. His public ministry is fairly fresh, and Jesus is out doing what Jesus did for three years of his public ministry. He's teaching, he's preaching. He's healing. He's doing this ministry in Galilee, the area of land that's just north of Jerusalem. And he's traveling from city to city, from town to town, village to village, in Galilee, preaching, teaching, healing. And as he does that, he has developed somewhat of a following. 
Even though his ministry is fairly new, this rabbi, this, this Jesus character, is drawing some attention because he's preaching and teaching and healing in a way that nobody's ever seen. They've never seen another teacher of the law, another rabbi do the things, say the things that this Jesus character does. And so they're attracted to him. People are attracted to Jesus. And he has this following, this, this group of people that is going literally from town to town with him, and it gets bigger at every town. And some just turn out and hear him when, they're, you know, when he's in their town. And so his following, he, he can draw some numbers now, maybe a few hundred, maybe even as many as a few thousand are following Jesus by the end of chapter 4, beginning of chapter 5 of the book of Matthew. And as Jesus has built this following, he comes upon an opportunity to do something that as of yet he had not done in his ministry. What Jesus does at the beginning of chapter 5, if you would look at those first few verses with me, says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Now, Jesus had done a lot of teaching already. I told you that a minute ago. Jesus has been teaching. He's been preaching. He's been healing. He's been doing his thing. But what he's about to do, he had not done. He's about to give a sermon, a prepared message, something that he had possibly taken time to sit down, write out, organize, put a flow to, this really organized message, this sermon, is something that we have come to know as the Sermon on the Mount. Because Jesus went up on the mountain where the people could see him and hear him, and he sat down. Now, normally at this point when he was teaching, he was like walking through town. He would see something, and, and it would spark. It was, it was like a teachable moment. If you're a parent, you know all about teachable moments, right? Your kids do something. You're like, aha, I can teach them about this. And, and Jesus was doing that. It was opportunistic teaching, I think, in a, in a lot of ways. But this was a very organized, set sermon, a prepared message that he was about to give. And as he opens this message, he makes eight statements that I think rocked people's worlds. And frankly, I believe today, if we really look at what he's saying, he, he's still 2,000 year late, years later rocking our worlds with these eight opening statements to the Sermon on the Mount. We've called these statements the Beatitudes. I used to think they were the Beatitudes. I thought, you know, maybe that was because somebody was trying to beat them into me. I hope I'm not beating these into anybody today. If you feel like you're being beaten, Chill. That's not my purpose. Come and see me later. Let me know I was beating you. But the Beatitudes. Now, Beatitude, by the way, because that's kind of a crazy word. It's not a word that we're very familiar with. Beatitude really just means uh, blessed or, or joyful or happy. That's kind of the translation of what Beatitude means. And you'll see why these eight statements are called the Beatitudes as we read them. Jesus said, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. 
Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus is teaching to his disciples. He's teaching them about being blessed, about living a blessed life, a joyful, happy life, a full life, the kind of life that he came to this earth to give to his disciples then, to his followers today, and in the future. Jesus came to give this to everybody. And he's teaching us here as he taught them how to live this blessed life. And really, as you look at these, you can kind of divide them into two sections, the first four and the second four of the Beatitudes. We're going to talk about the first four Beatitudes today. The first four lessons about blessing that Jesus taught really are characteristics that his followers display towards God. That's really what's at the root of these. These are characteristics that followers of Christ, people who love Jesus, that they display towards God. By the way, if you missed the challenge a minute ago, I just saw in my notes I didn't talk about the challenge. I keep notes in my Bible so I don't miss things because I'll go on tangents like this in a hurry. If you missed a minute ago when I said this was a challenging message and you heard me say all these things about blessing, you're like, what was the challenge in all of that? What was the challenge, Todd? I don't get the challenge. Hold on, hold on. Who did Jesus say is blessed? The poor in spirit? Those who mourn? The meek? People who hunger and thirst? Let's just stop at those four. Does anybody want to be one of those? Do we think about people who fit into those categories as being blessed? We feel sorry for those people, right? I think at that time in culture, and those people felt sorry for people who were, who were mourning, who were meek, who were hungry and thirsty, who were poor in spirit or poor in pocket, either way. But Jesus said they're blessed. We're going to find out why they're blessed and how they're blessed as we go through these first four Beatitudes this morning. Let's look at verse 3. Verse 3, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. If he had just said, blessed are the poor, like, in the bank, blessed are those who don't have any money, whose pockets don't go jingle jangle, whose wallets aren't fat, I could have understood a lot better what Jesus was talking about. Right? But he didn't say that. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. What does that mean, poor in spirit? I think poor in spirit is described beautifully in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. Jesus is telling a parable in this passage, Luke 18, 9 to 14, a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector. Now, if you don't know what a Pharisee is, a Pharisee was like a really legalistic, religious person back in Jesus' time. They were Jewish people, and they were all about the, Ju the Judaic law, all about the law of Moses and a lot of other laws that they had piled on top. And they thought their righteousness came from their obedience to the law. They believed they were righteous because of the way that they acted. And a tax collector, well, they kind of thought in those days about tax collectors kind of like we think about the IRS. And if you're an IRS agent in here today, I just offended you, and I am so sorry, but you know you don't have the most popular job in the world, right? That's how they looked at tax collectors. Tax collectors were, were their Jewish brothers who had partnered up with the Roman government that the Jewish people did not like because they were living under oppression, and they were collecting the tax for Rome, and a lot of times they over-collected and lined their own pockets, 
They were using their countrymen. And so the Jews were not overly fond of tax collectors, and the Pharisees were this, this religious sect of Judaism that was all about the law and, and oppression, and, and you better obey the law or you're dying and going to hell. And it sounds very Southern Baptist, and I just offended somebody else. That was supposed to be funny. Anyway, here's what Jesus said, verses 9 to 14, Luke chapter 18. To some who were confident of their own righteousness, I think he's talking to a Pharisee here, and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Oh, God, I thank you that that's not me. I'm not a robber. I'm not an evildoer. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. Aren't I great? That was I added that. It's not in your Bible either. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast, and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The tax collector and the Pharisee. One believed that he was righteous by his own religious behavior. He, he, he believed that he was spiritually rich. The other understood that he was spiritually broke, bankrupt, very, very poor, and that nothing he did, nothing he could do, could make himself anything other than that. And he called out to God for God's righteousness, for God's grace, for God's mercy. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who realize they cannot do it on their own. You cannot do it in and of yourself. You cannot attend enough church services. You cannot belong to the right denomination. You cannot pray enough prayers or even the right prayers. You cannot give enough money, serve enough poor people. You cannot become righteous on your own. You are made righteous by the righteousness of Christ when you invite him into your heart to be your Lord and to be your Savior, to save you from your sin and to lead you in your life. And the righteousness of Christ, who lived a perfect life, is imparted to you at that moment. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who realize they must have God. They must have God. Blessed are you when that realization hits you and you do something with it. Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. And surely God is the God of all comfort. He comforts those who mourn. If you've ever been in mourning, and I think most of us at this stage of our lives have mourned, 
You've either mourned the loss of a relationship, the loss of a loved one. You've, you've mourned something. And you know that God can bring that peace, that grace, that, that comfort that just it blows anything on earth away to feel the, the arms of God wrapped around you and, and just to know that comfort. But I think God, I think Jesus is talking about something even deeper, even bigger, something different from that when he says this. And by the way, I'm not the only one that's ever thought that. A lot of scholars have thought this. It's not an original idea. I got it as I read and prepared and prayed. Understood that there was more to this morning than what I might understand mourning to be. Blessed are those who mourn. Mourn what? I think we're mourning our own sinfulness in this example. We're mourning our own dark and depraved hearts, our own behaviors. Paul wrote about this, some of his writings. He said that he was considered himself to be chief among sinners. He despised the fact that he had persecuted God's church. Before coming to Christ, actually before Christ ambushed him, that's what he did. He persecuted God's church. He killed Christians. And as a Christian, then he was just mournful about his condition, about his own dark heart and sinfulness, about the flesh that he continued to battle against, even as a follower of Christ. There's other examples in the Bible of why I think that this may be what, what Jesus was talking about when he says, blessed are those who mourn. King David in the Old Testament, a man that God said was after his own heart. God said that about David after David's life. So after all of the, the good, the bad, and the ugly of David's life, then God said, this was a man after my own heart. That life, the good, the bad, and the ugly, some of the bad and the ugly, David committed adultery with one of his best friend's wife. That's pretty dark. And then to cover his adulterous tracks, he committed murder. He had his friend killed. That's pretty sinful. And David pours out his mournful heart in the Psalms. He details how horrible he knows he is. Not just was, but is. The darkness of his own heart. He just mourns his sinfulness. Both Paul, previously known as Saul, and David have something very much in common. They repented of those sins. They repented. They turned away from that sin in their life, from the darkness and the depravity of their hearts. They turned from that. And they set an example for us. Because turning from your sin is crucial. Because sin separates. Separates you from God and God from you. Your sin and my sin, that separates us from God. Sin nailed Jesus to the cross. Let me make that personal. My sin nailed Jesus to the cross. The song we sang a few minutes ago said that he died for all, but he would have died for one. If I was the only one, if you were the only one who would ever need salvation, Jesus would have gone to the cross for only you. Your sin, my sin, 
nailed him to the cross. We should mourn our sin. Believers do mourn their sin because they realize how dark and depraved, how lost and sinful they are in and of themselves. When we nailed Jesus to the cross, God's heart broke. When you sin, when I sin, God's heart breaks. Because when we sin, we, we take ourselves out of God's plan, out of God's design for us. We remove ourselves from where He wants us to be and who He designed us to be. We separate ourselves, we go our own way, and God's heart breaks because He knows He has so much more for you. He has so much more for you. And it breaks His heart. The things that, breaks God, that break God's heart should break your heart. If you're a believer in Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you love God, when you break his heart, when somebody else breaks his heart, your heart should break too. It should break our hearts. We should be, oh, so mournful of our sin. We should repent of that sin, turn away from it, run back to God. Not approach God with this uber confidence, this swagger. That's all right. I can sin. God will forgive me. I can do what I want to do. I'm a Christian. I pray to prayer, baby. I can live how I want to live now. I can do what I want to do. God will forgive me. We should approach the throne of God mournful, repentant, broken-hearted. And when we do, Jesus says, we will be comforted. We'll be comforted with a comfort that we can't get anywhere else. There's no blankie, no passy, no whoobie, no hug from mom and dad, no band-aid that can bring the comfort that Christ is talking about. It comes only from God and only when we are mournful and repentant of our sin. Verse 5, blessed are the meek. One of my least favorite verses of Scripture when I was a, a young, you know, like a teenager, and, and I was kind of playing around with, with what does it mean to be a Christian and kind of testing the, the waters, I had some friends who were Christians. I was not by, by long, long ways, was not. But I was intrigued by it when I was about 12 to 14 years old. And, and I heard a message one time at this church, and the pastor talked about being meek. And frankly, I thought he was pretty meek. He talked with a voice like this, and he was very soft-spoken and very soft in his manner. And I thought meek meant something that I have now learned that meek does not mean. So if you think that to be a Christian means that you have to be milk toast, a doormat, that you just have to lay down and just not defend yourself, not defend Christ, not defend the cross, not defend, not, not be strong in any way. If you just have to be the whipping boy of the world and turn the other cheek. We'll talk about turning the other cheek in another week. Let me tell you what the word meek means. Blew my mind. It comes from a Greek word called praeus, P-R-A-U-S. Praeus is the word that was used to describe a, a, like a dog that was trained. Or even better, a fully trained 
war horse. Oh, <laughs> that appeals to my manliness. I mean, I'm a guy that likes to hunt his own food, man. I like the bow and the arrow. I like the fire. I, like, I, I fish, I, whatever, outdoors, tough, dirty, nitty-gritty. I'm in. And when I heard about this, I was like, oh, well, wait a minute. Maybe this Christianity thing isn't just for, for milk toast people. Maybe I can be a man and be a Christian at the same time. This word, Prius, this fully trained warhorse. If you saw the movie Warhorse, I know it wasn't a huge box office hit. Raise your if you anybody, anybody, anybody? Okay, yeah. Almost half the room saw the movie Warhorse. If you didn't see the movie Warhorse, go home and rent that tonight. That's an amazing movie. It'll give you a great example of what it means to be this fully trained warhorse. I'm talking about a skittish animal by nature who, when fully trained, will come under the control, under the authority of his master, his rider. And uh, the skittish animal will charge hell-bent for leather, headlong, full speed ahead, right into a line of opposing enemy people. I'm talking about guys with spears, guys with swords, armor, torches of fire. And the horse will run right into the middle of them, just uh, right there. No hesitation, no fear. No pausing to think about it, not resisting when, when his rider digs that spur into his flanks. Head down, charge. Fully trained war horse. Fully submitted Christian. Responds to God the Father that exact same way. See, meek isn't, isn't milk toast weak. Meek is fully responsible responsive to the promptings and to the leadership of God the Father. Meek is listening and obeying without hesitation. It's trusting God fully. Not trusting God more than, not trusting God most of the time. It's trusting God fully and then doing what God says, what he leads you to do. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who do not ignore, do not resist, do not go their own way. Blessed are those who respond to God. Because when we do, God says we'll inherit the earth. We'll inherit the earth. I think that's a promise for right now, and I think that's a promise for the future because in Revelation we find out that the earth is going to pass away and there's going to be a new earth and a new heaven, by the way. And Jesus is going to reign and it's going to be cool and it's going to be a party for all the believers. We're going to hang together. And I think that's what Jesus is talking about here. Blessed are those who submit to God fully, who trust Him fully, who follow Him unquestioningly, for they will have that eternity with him. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That sounds really logical. And I, out of all of these, that's the one I can wrap my mind around the most. I need to be hungry and I need to be in pursuit of God. I need to chase after God. I need to hunger and thirst for God. Well, let's stop and think about hunger and thirst for a moment. Most of us, 
I'll throw myself in this. We've never really been hungry. We've never really been thirsty. I mean, I've been on the football field, you know, and playing a game or practicing in 105, and I've been thirsty, but I've never been days without water thirsty. If you have, man, you've got a different experience, and that's cool. I'm, I, honestly, I'm glad you have it because I think you're better off for it. I've been hungry before. We did, I'm a Boy Scout. We did a, we did a thing a couple times you know, during my years in scouting where we'd go to the woods for a weekend with only what we could carry in our pockets and no food. It was survival weekend. And we'd scavenge for, you know, crickets and worms and stuff. And yeah, man, they're pretty tasty after a couple days without eating, right? On a Sunday afternoon, I've been there since Friday night. Worms is good. But I've never really been hungry. I've never really been to the point where if I didn't have my next meal, I might not make it. And I bet most of you haven't been either. I think when Jesus talks about thirsting and hungering for righteousness... I think he's talking about on the brink of death. I think he's talking about realizing that without these things, without this thing, without righteousness, I'm going to die. Physically, die. Spiritually, die. I'm going to die. That's how hungry, how thirsty I am for the righteousness of Christ. And that's what righteousness is. Righteousness is Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness. It's Christ in me and me in Christ. Can't be righteous on my own. Talked about that a minute ago in the first beatitude, right? Can't be, I can't be righteous. Can't earn it, can't do it. I can only be righteous in Christ. And my hunger, my thirst for Christ-likeness is what drives me to respond in meekness when the Holy Spirit prompts me, do this, don't do that, live this way. This is who you are. This is what God designed you to be. This is your call. This is your purpose. It's when I hunger and thirst for Him that I can respond in praise to Him. The righteous life, Jesus says, is blessed. Because these people will be filled, filled with the Holy Spirit who comes and takes up residence in the heart of believers, filled with peace from God that you are living, being, doing who and what you're designed and purposed to be and to do. Jesus said that he's the bread of life. He said if you eat of him, you'll never be hungry again. He told the woman at a well, drink this water. This is water that you'll never be thirsty again. He's not talking about physical hunger and physical thirst. He's talking about spiritual. If we will eat the bread of life and drink that water that is Jesus, if we will thirst and hunger after his righteousness, we'll be filled and our lives blessed. Elevation Church, I stand on this platform this morning, and I want to ask you, I don't know, maybe a difficult challenging question for some for others it may not the questions I'm about to ask I don't ask on my own authority I don't ask out of my own righteousness I ask on the authority of God and out of his righteousness because he desires your righteousness the questions I have for you are simple but they may be very challenging if you're a Christian here this morning a believer in Jesus 
a follower of Christ. Whatever you want to label yourself, call yourself. If you believe that you are saved, how's that? Do you demonstrate these four beatitudes? These are the things that we Christians, believers, demonstrate towards God. Trust and faithfulness in Him, knowing that we have no righteous without, righteousness without Him, that He is our righteousness. It's, it's following His lead. It's being mournful of our own sinful situation. It's being hungry and thirsty for Him, desiring Him with all of our heart. Do you demonstrate those beatitudes, those blessings? Do you see them at work in your life, at work in your relationship with Him? If you don't, then what are you going to do about it? If you thought I was going to give you the answer, I'm sorry. I'm afraid I can't. That's between you and God. If those beatitudes are not real and vibrant and active in your life, what then will you do? I think I'd start, if I'm just going to give you a little hint, with trusting Him for the answer. What if you're not a Christian here this morning? Some of you sitting here may not have made a decision for Christ. You may not be, you know, uh, one of those who thinks that you're saved, knows that you're saved. You may not save from what? You don't even know what I'm talking about. I love it when I talk religious talk and people don't know. I like to identify with you. I was in your seat for a long time. If you don't know Christ personally, if you don't have a daily relationship with Him, talking with Him, walking with Him, seeking Him in His Word, hearing from Him through the Spirit, if you're one of those people and you don't know Jesus like that. Here's your question this morning. Are you ready to be filled? Are you ready to be filled? Are you ready to live a blessed life? This full life? This life of joy, of happiness, of blessing? Jesus has just talked about, we just read four passages of Scripture that talk about just one little small part of the life that Jesus offers. Are you ready this morning to be filled? To stop hungering and thirsting and trying to fill that hunger and that thirst with something that can never fill you? See, because I don't know about you, me, before I was a Christian, I chased all kinds of things, trying to fill the void in my life, trying to fill that pit in the, in, the, in the emptiness of my stomach that made me hunger for this and hunger for that. I thought I could be rich. I thought I could be, I wasn't even really trying to be famous. I would kind of was on the little darker path. I was looking for infamy. I would, I'd have been happy with infamous. Right? I, I, just, anything, I, I was hungering for something. I was chasing it in relationships. I was chasing it in, in substances trying to be important, trying to do anything I could to feel. You know what? I was never filled. My thirst was never slaked. I was never fulfilled until I was ambushed by Jesus. After doing a drug deal with a guy that I didn't know was a police officer, 
I had a little come to Jesus moment. And Jesus ambushed me. Big time. And I remember laying there the morning after all of this went down, sort of kind of getting sober and realizing there's got to be more to life than this. There's got to be. One party after another. One, we don't even call them relationships. Just one date, one-nighter, I don't know, after another. More money, less money, what, I, there's got to be more. And I didn't pray a prayer that morning. I didn't know what that more was. It took me almost two years to figure it out. But when I finally got it right, my life has been filled. I've lived a blessed life, an abundant life, a joyous and most of the time happy life. Not a life without struggles, not a life without trials, but a life where I could be joyful even in those struggles and trials, where I could smile in some of the darkest days I've seen. Because I'm not, I'm not hungry to try to fill the void in my life. I'm only hungry for a deeper, better closer, stronger relationship with Jesus. I'm not trying to be righteous in and of myself, important in and of myself. I have righteousness in Christ. I'm important because I'm a prince in the kingdom of God. Ladies and gentlemen, that's where you stand or sit this morning. Princes and princesses, sons and daughters of the king, and you're one decision away, a decision to live filled, to let Jesus fill you. So if you're in that seat this morning, and I believe somebody in this room is in that seat this morning. I don't know who you are. Are you ready to be filled? If you are, pray with me. Let's all bow our heads. There's nothing magic in a prayer. No magic words you can say again. This righteousness is not anything that you do. It's what Jesus has already done. He did it on the cross. He did it when he kicked the door of the grave open. He did it when he ascended into heaven 40 days after he rose from the dead. So there's nothing magic in the words. I'm going to ask you to pray if you're ready to be filled. All of the significance, all of the meaning is in your heart. It's in your prayers, your submission, your meekness before God. Do you really, to the best of your ability, believe? And are you ready to receive the filling that Jesus offers? If so, this is the prayer you pray. God, I admit that I'm a sinner. And I am sorry. My heart breaks because I have broken yours. God, I've lived my, my life my way. And it's got me where I am. I'm ready to go where you want to take me. So Jesus, I give you control. Lead me. Save me from my sin. Take up residence in my heart. And I will follow you to the best of my ability. I will hunger and thirst for you all of my life. It's that simple. 
I call that the deadliest catch in Christianity because it's so simple. Sometimes people pray a prayer and they don't mean it. They think there's magic in the words, so I want you to know the words didn't do it. It's the condition of your heart, and God only knows. You and God know. But I believe this morning, if you believed that and prayed that, then the old you is dead, and there is a new you that is coming to life even now. And you're called to walk in that newness of life, to hunger and thirst for Him. And so Elevation Church is here to help you in that, in that walk, in that process. God has put the church in place to lead you, to give you a place of, of teaching and a place of comfort, a place of uh, being surrounded by fellow believers who can walk with you on this journey. So I invite you to come and be a part of this family, be a part of this movement of God. There's other great churches in our community. If you don't like it here, go somewhere else. But plug in to a church that is teaching the Word of God, a place where you can be part of the community and be led and loved, taught and trained. Christians this morning who asked yourselves those, that question a minute ago of am I or aren't I displaying these beatitudes in my life? Seek God for that answer. Humble yourself before Him. Ask and shut up. Listen for the leadership of the Lord. Listen in your heart. And the same thing applies. The church is here as the body of believers, the bride of Christ, to lead you, to help shape you spiritually, to give you wise counsel, even to rebuke you when you're out of line and wrong. Plug in. Build relationships with these people that are around you right now. Plug in to the body and live the full, blessed life.